This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. I am a surgeon over in the Department of Ears, Nose, and Throat here at Stanford. Uh, I am also a laryngologist by training. Uh, this is a physician that specializes in vocal cord disorders, and so it's going to be my pleasure to talk to you tonight about the vocal cords uh, and all of the common causes of hoarseness uh, that seem to affect uh, people with vocal cords, which is all of us. Hopefully tonight we're going to have uh, an opportunity to learn a couple of things. By the time we're done, we'll have provided you with a little bit more information about the anatomy of this very complex region. Uh, secondly, um, I hope that we'll be able to uh, introduce you to some of the most common causes of hoarseness that there are. Uh, third, after you've seen the lecture tonight, you should be familiar with some of the common treatments. The throat is complex. The throat is basically everything from the bottom of your chin down to the top of your shoulders. Um, you can think of the throat as being divided simplistically into two common chambers. One chamber uh, divides into two. The forward chamber, uh, which is your air passage, is basically guarded by your voice box. Uh, the back chamber is your food passage or your pharynx. Um, simply put, air moves through the front chamber and is controlled by the larynx. Uh, food and liquid go down the back chamber. Uh, that is actually also controlled by the larynx. The topic for us tonight is going to be uh, basically the subject of the larynx. I'm going to just say that the pharynx itself, think of it as a muscular tube. Uh, problems with this area result in problems with your swallowing in general. Uh, that's a subject really for another night. So we're not going to dwell too much on the pharynx, but we're going to go directly to the larynx or as most people know this as the voice box. Uh, we think often of the voice box or the larynx as being our speech producing organ, but it is far, far more complicated than that. Uh, it is also an organ that's critical for our swallowing. Uh, the vocal cords act as a valve that closes when we swallow. If we can't swallow, I'm sorry, if we can't close our vocal cords when we swallow, food and liquid will go into our airway. That causes pneumonia. Uh, people can drown when that happens. Um, the other thing that the vocal cords do is it regulates our ability to breathe. When we breathe, the vocal cords will open up. Uh, if the vocal cords cannot open normally, we cannot breathe, and many patients will then need uh, a special tube called a tracheotomy tube. We'll be going over in just a minute some of the functions of the larynx so that I can demonstrate that to you more clearly. Another essential function that we don't really think of is the fact that with vocal cords, that gives us the ability to cough. If we can't cough, we can't clear our airway. If we're sick, we can't clear our airway of infected secretions. Um, we, won't, we won't survive very long if we don't have a very effective cough. We also have the ability to lift because we have the vocal cords. We're able to close our vocal cords when we do something athletic like bear down and lift a weight. Uh, you won't realize that this, how important this function is until you actually have a paralyzed vocal cord and can't keep your cords closed when you lift. 
Um, many athletes find that they're very out of breath when they have a paralyzed vocal cord because of the loss of this important function. What I've just told to you can be summarized in, in one simple thing. The voice box is critical to quality of life. If it's not functioning well, quality of life is poor. My job is to make the quality of life better. That's why I enjoy being in the field I am, and that's why it's important to know about the diseases and fix them. The voice box is extraordinarily complicated. It's actually made out of eight individual cartilages. Actually, only about half of them uh, have a, a modern function. The other four are basically left over from evolution, and we don't really need to concern ourselves with them. There are nine muscles, uh, two true vocal cords, two false vocal cords, two major motor nerves, and two major sensory nerves, all contained in an extremely tiny, small space. This is a very complicated organ. I want to show you what the vocal cords look like in some basic activities. Uh, you're going to see what happens when the vocal cords are closed, when they're open, what we look like when we're speaking in a falsetto or a high pitch, how we look when we're in low pitch, what a whisper looks like, and what a cough looks like. This is what we look like when we're saying E. You'll notice that the vocal cords close and they also vibrate. When we breathe, they open up wide and we can see straight down into the airway. This is what we look like when we're saying a high-pitched E. We drop our pitch and the cords shorten. time you clear your throat, that's what you're doing. That's very traumatic to the vocal cords, so don't do that. <laughs> Why do we make a science out of studying the throat? Everybody's got one, so there's a lot of business for people like me. Uh, both benign and malignant or cancerous diseases affect the vocal cords. You meet a lot of interesting people uh, in your field. This disease is basically a non-discriminatory uh, non issue. Uh, if you have a throat, you're, you're susceptible to the problems that can affect the throat, regardless of age, males and females, children and adults. Um, and all of the factors that we, can, we consider to be important to the quality of life are impacted if the vocal cords and the voice box isn't working well. This actually is an extremely old field. Uh, the, the field of vocal cord study was probably the very first subspecialty in medicine ever. Uh, and this is the founder, Dr. Morel McKenzie, who was an English uh, physician uh, who actually founded the first hospital for throat diseases in London in about 1865. What was interesting about Dr. McKenzie is that he performed over 900 biopsies in his office in an era when there was no anesthetic and no electrical light. Um, so this is truly an incredible clinician. Um, what actually propelled Dr. McKenzie to fame in his day in, in, his day in Victorian England was probably this gentleman here, um, one of his most famous patients. Uh, this is uh, uh, King Frederick II of Prussia. Uh, King Frederick II uh, was the heir to the German throne. Um, as some of you may know from military history, uh, around the turn of the century, Germany was an empire. Um, when Kaiser Frederick II uh, was in his middle age, um, he began to become hoarse. Uh, 
<clears throat> Dr. Mackenzie was summoned from England to examine uh, the heir to the throne, and this is Dr. Mackenzie's original drawing uh, from his examination of King Frederick. As you can see, uh, he had a growth on the vocal cord. Um, sad to say, uh, this turned out to be cancer, and approximately 90 days after King Frederick ascended the throne and became Kaiser of Germany, he died. In this day and age, a lesion like this would probably be considered the earliest form of laryngeal cancer, and cure rates for something like this in our, in our modern era are probably better than 95%. But uh, in, in roughly 1900, this was a death sentence and a very unpleasant way to die. Interestingly, on his death, this allowed the ascension of his son, uh, King Wilhelm, to the throne. Um, King Wilhelm had different political ideas than his father, uh, and often and often is considered the main driving force for the reason that uh, Germany took its course in the 20th century uh, and subsequently uh, led Germany into World War I. So some people think that had King Frederick lived and not died of laryngeal cancer, the world as we know it today may have been a very different place. So think of that uh, when you think of the vocal cords, that perhaps world history was changed. <laughs> I like to think so. Um, if you come to the doctor's office uh, in this day and age for an evaluation of your vocal cords, usually it's because a person is hoarse and we're not quite sure what's going on. Uh, sometimes patients will be treated for things like infections or colds, and if you're not getting better, that often stimulates a referral to a person like me. But typically when you come on into the office, uh, people like me have specialized instruments um, and we're actually looking at the vocal cords uh, and taking some pictures of the vocal cords. Um, the rest of the lecture tonight is going to basically be images that we're going to be, be looking at, and these images were taken in the clinic. Um, the standard of care used to be that we would look at your throat with a mirror, uh, and this is the headlight that most people associate with physicians. This headlight is used to reflect light onto the mirror, and that used to allow us to look at the vocal cords, and you get a very good picture that way. But fortunately, we're the inheritors of modern technology, and we have specialized instruments now to get down there very close and look. Uh, this is a typical fiber optic camera that some of you may be familiar with if you've ever had, had the fortune or misfortune to come into my office. Uh, this actually comes, comes through the nose uh, after we numb up the nose with some topical anesthetic, and we're able to look directly at the vocal cords with this long instrument. Um, another instrument that we use fairly widely uh, is a rigid endoscope. This is a long metal rod, and we kind of look through the mouth. This gives us a nice picture of the vocal cords that we're able to project onto the TV screen. If we can't tell very well what's going on with a person in the office, the next step is to go to the operating room. Uh, and in the operating room, we typically are having a person asleep and we're looking down the throat with a microscope and some very long instruments. The purpose really for uh, going to the operating room is either to get a closer look at what's going on, to take a biopsy, uh, to remove a growth on the vocal cords, and usually we're doing something like this with the assistance of a carbon dioxide laser. Um, when we're in the operating room, this is the kind of view um, that we may be getting. Um, this is a, a gentleman who came into my clinic who was quite hoarse, um, and we found that he had a growth on the vocal cords. You can see that when we're there in the operating room, we can get right down onto it, touch it, manipulate it, find out what's going on. Um, this particular growth was on somewhat of a stalk and was actually folded, folded over and hanging down onto the vocal cord, which was making him hoarse. This turned out to be a, a cancer of the vocal cords, and we were able to actually remove this with a laser. The view that we get through the uh, microscope like this is really uh, beyond par these days. It's really quite good. Um, after we remove growths like, growth like this, they usually go to the pathologist, and we're able to tell for sure what they are. 
Um, for the rest of the lecture, we're going to be looking at quite a lot of pictures, uh, and you're going to see that they're in two modalities. In the uh, view over here uh, to the left of the screen, uh, you'll notice that the V shape of the vocal cords is with the V down at the bottom of the picture. Um, this is the orientation of uh, the patient in the clinic. We're looking at the patient, and the, patient's, the front of the patient's neck is down here by the arrow. This would be the back of the patient, right side, left side. These images over here to the right are the images we get in the operating room. So things are reversed. The V is pointed up. The right side is to the right as it should be, and the left is to the left. So you'll see the images flip back and forth, but just keep in mind we're, we're looking at the vocal cords. Um, this also highlights a little bit of a difference between our ability to image the vocal cords. Uh, this is a gentleman who came in to see me for hoarseness. When we take a look at him in the clinic, there's really not a whole lot to see. Um, there looks like there's a little bump coming from the left, I'm sorry, from his right vocal cord, as you can see over here. Uh, but when we take a look in the operating room, the picture is really quite different. He has actually a fairly large growth that involves almost the entire right half of one vocal cord, and it's extremely flat and ulcerated, and this turned out to be a carcinoma. Um, when we don't get a very good look in the clinic or the diagnosis is in doubt, this is why it's so important to take a look in the operating room and really figure out what's going on. So what kind of problems do patients come to see us for? Well, uh, we, patients may be hoarse. Uh, they may have a sense that there's a lump in the throat. The medical term for that is globus, uh, like globule. Um, some patients may have difficulty with their swallowing, or the swallowing may even be painful. Um, sometimes if the vocal cords are not working well, the patients may be choking or aspirating. That's liquid going into the airway. There may be blood in the spit, and there actually may be pain that radiates to other sites that you might not think. Pain in the ear is typical. Um, let's talk about some of these afflictions that we typically see. The one that people most commonly uh, uh, think of is the phenomenon of acute laryngitis. Typically, we see these patients following a severe upper respiratory tract infection, a cold, or a flu. Patients are typically extremely hoarse. They may even lose their voice. And when they lose the voice, it may be so profound, uh, and for the first time, that this is what prompts a visit to us. Um, when we actually look at patients with an acute laryngitis, the vocal cords themselves um, are actually quite red, and they're quite swollen. Um, there may be thick mucus on the vocal cords. Actually, the vocal cords themselves will move quite normally. The reason why the voice is so bad is that the vocal cords themselves are so stiff and swollen that they don't vibrate anymore. Um, usually, as the swelling goes away, the voice comes back and normalizes, but this can take a very long time. Because the vocal cords are a very difficult organ to completely rest, unlike something like a wrist that you can splint if it's injured, uh, the vocal cords are constantly in motion when we swallow, cough, or clear our throat. So sometimes just uh, extreme voice rest is not enough. Uh, there are other infectious processes that will afflict the vocal cords. Um, this is a condition called papilloma. Papilloma is basically uh, the formation of warts on the vocal cords. This patient here has a very large collection of warts on the left vocal cord. Uh, this is caused by a virus, the same viruses that causes warts at the cervix or warts on the skin. Um, this is painless. Um, patients have usually no other symptoms except for the fact that they're extremely hoarse. Um, this is actually an infectious disorder, but actually how it's transmitted from person to person, it's not clear. Whether or not it can be tr transmitted from one adult to another is debatable. Uh, it certainly can be transmitted from a mother who is infected with, with warts to a newborn baby. Um, 
patients that actually have warts of the vocal cords um, may be very hoarse because the bulk of the wart is actually causing the vocal cords to be held apart and there may be a large gap between the cords because the cords can't touch anymore. Um, sometimes these uh, lesions are isolated to one cord and sometimes they're very diffuse. The treatment is almost always surgical removal and usually with a laser. Uh, the warts, have, we don't have a cure for this, so the rule of thumb is that this is something that will come back and patients need to be aware of this. Um, in certain serotypes of the virus, there may be an associated increased risk of cancer although by and large the, the serotypes of the virus that cause this disorder don't cause cancer. Um, this is an example of a patient um, that I treated uh, when I was a fellow at UCLA. Um, as you can see, um, the papilloma here are fairly extreme and completely engulf the vocal cords. Um, this is a patient that actually presented with some difficulty breathing. When we remove the growths, you can see what the normal vocal cords should look like. And here's what was buried underneath all of those growths. If the, if the growths are actually left unchecked and allowed to get very large, people actually can have trouble with their breathing. This is particularly a problem in children because the warts, or these papilloma rather, in children can grow so fast. Um, probably uh, the most common disorder that people think of when they think of hoarseness is are nodules. Uh, nodules essentially are small calluses that develop on the vocal cords. They, they typically involve both vocal cords and these are essentially small calluses. Uh, they develop in reaction to some kind of trauma between the vocal cords. Um, you all I'm sure have heard a person who has nodules. The voice is typically somewhat husky or hoarse. Some people may have kind of a sexy quality to the voice, um, so it's not always bad. Um, the hallmark of the nodules is the fact that it tends to involve both sides. Um, because it is a problem with the way people use their vocal cords, usually the treatment is to readjust the way a person speaks, and that's done through speech therapy, uh, trying to teach a person not to speak in a way that causes abuse and trauma to the vocal cords at this point. Uh, usually patients that don't get better with speech therapy will then undergo surgery. This is not a malignant condition. This is entirely benign. Um, another issue that sometimes comes up uh, that can be mistaken for nodules is a cyst. A cyst can occur in the vocal cord. Uh, the actual cause is somewhat debated, but it's also thought to be due to trauma. Uh, a cyst, interestingly, is usually one-sided. Unlike nodules, which are two-sided, a cyst can actually be filled with solid debris or it may be filled with fluid. Um, the major problem with a cyst, is, again, is that it interferes with vocal cord closure and vibration. Um, cysts will not go away usually with speech therapy. Usually cysts uh, are removed surgically by making a small incision on the surface of the cord and then removing the cyst from inside the vocal cord. Um, patients can have problems sometimes after surgery with recurrence of cysts if the actual underlying cause was some kind of vocal abuse. So these can occasionally come back. Uh, another form of uh, growth that afflicts the vocal cords is something called the granuloma. Uh, the granuloma is very interesting in the sense that it's actually an, inf it's an inflammatory reaction um, to some kind of trauma and it's usually localized on the back portion of the vocal cord. Uh, this is actually essentially like a, a reactive growth uh, that usually starts from a break or a cut in the skin of the vocal cord. Because uh, the back of the vocal cords are in constant contact and motion, this area is, is traumatized repetitively. And in an effort to heal itself, the body generates um, a very uh, exuberant growth called the granuloma. Um, 
Interestingly, many patients with granulomas may also have underlying acid reflux disease. Because acid is thought to come up from the esophagus and then deposit or spill onto the back portion of the larynx, um, because it's thought to spill onto the back portion of the larynx here, acid reflux has long been thought uh, to be the cause of these. Um, interestingly, patients will have pain when they talk, and oftentimes pain goes to the uh, side of the uh, ear that the lesion is on. So in this case, a person would have a right-sided ear pain. Many patients also have a sense of a lump in the throat. Usually we are trying to treat these patients by giving them antibiotics and other anti-inflammatory medications. Uh, this is the patient that you just saw in the previous slide. This granuloma is really too big to treat with medicine alone. This is the view that we get in the operating room, and as you can see, the granuloma is actually quite massive. It's even larger than the person's own vocal cord. Uh, because of the size of this, this was actually propping his vocal cords apart and making him very hoarse. Uh, the bottom picture here is what the entire granuloma looks like um, once it's entirely excised. Um, Granulomas like this usually need to be removed. Smaller granulomas we can just treat with things like voice rest and anti-acid medications. Um, occasionally we will actually inject botulinum toxin or Botox into the vocal cords to try to actually put the vocal cords at rest and weaken them. Weakening the vocal cords allows the back part of the vocal cords to heal. Um, these are often very difficult to treat and can often come back. Uh, an entity that is somewhat similar to the granuloma is something called the polyp. Um, a polyp is usually, again, on one side of the vocal cord. Uh, it is very soft. It's usually uh, secondary to some kind of a trauma to the vocal cord, either the way a person speaks or possibly from having an endotracheal tube go down from an anesthetic operation. Um, patients are usually hoarse. This is usually not painful. Um, sometimes these actually fill up with blood periodically. So uh, you'll see these in patients that often enjoy the nightlife. They may be going out to a bar or to a club. They do a lot of yelling, uh, speaking over the din, and then the next morning they wake up and they're profoundly hoarse. The reason is usually that they've actually bled into the growth itself and the polyp has gotten very large. As the blood recedes, the, the uh, uh, polyp shrinks and their voice may get better. But usually treatment for this is actually removing the growth in its entirety. Scarring is probably one of the uh, worst types of disorders that we see. Uh, this is a patient that has scarring of both vocal cords. Um, the hallmark of scarring is the fact that although the vocal cords open and, open and close well, they don't vibrate. Uh, and because the vocal cords have lost their ability to vibrate, the vocal quality is quite profoundly hoarse. Um, in this situation, this patient actually had an operation for nodule removal and unfortunately sustained quite a lot of damage during the procedure, which left the vocal cords very stiff um, and uh, not very mobile. Unfortunately, um, because the vocal cords themselves are scarred, it's very difficult to rehabilitate this. Um, occasionally, we will go ahead and try to inject something into the vocal cords to try to restore some of this elasticity, either collagen um, or sometimes fat. Um, uh, currently, we've also tried other things like injecting uh, uh, harvested skin cells back into the vocal cords in the hopes that these skin cells will then go along to uh, secrete the collagen fibers indefinitely. But it's uh, an extremely difficult disorder to correct. Uh, in addition to operation, people may have such trauma from instrumentation such as an endotracheal tube passing down the vocal cords. 
Uh, an extremely common cause of hoarseness that many people are not aware of is the entity of paralysis of the vocal cords. It is actually possible to paralyze a vocal cord. Um, when paralyzed, one vocal cord will move, but the other one will not be able to move. Uh, depending on the severity of the paralysis, um, it uh, the vocal quality uh, may be everything from fairly normal to profoundly hoarse. Uh, in this patient's case, as you can see, there is a very large gap between the vocal cords when the patient is trying to talk. Um, because of that gap, that's what cause, causes the breathy or hoarse quality. Um, typically, we see this uh, after some kind of surgical procedure, such as open heart surgery. Uh, the reason for that is that the vocal cord nerve on the left-hand side runs down into the chest, and it's often stretched or injured uh, in the process of, say, manipulating the heart. Uh, we can also see this after procedures such as thyroid surgery. Uh, up in the neck, the vocal cord nerves run directly behind the thyroid gland and can be pulled or stretched or even sometimes uh, cut uh, in the act of removing a tumor from the thyroid gland, and this will cause the vocal cord to be paralyzed. Um, uh, in patients that have had no surgery, it's sometimes possible to, inquire, to acquire an infection of the nerve, which then paralyzes the nerve and causes the vocal cord to stop moving. If that were to happen, usually what we do uh, is uh, wait. Most of the time, this will recover on its own. If there's been some other trauma, such as the nerve being severed, usually we need to do something uh, sooner since waiting will not uh, result in resolution of the paralysis. Paralysis, interestingly, is quite painless. Uh, and a person's symptoms will vary depending on how large this gap is between the vocal cords. Some patients may be mildly hoarse or not even hoarse at all. If the vocal fold chooses to paralyze directly in the midline and closure is relatively good, people may be entirely asymptomatic and not know that they have a paralyzed cord. Other patients may have such a large gap that when they swallow, their own saliva passes down into their lungs and they may need to be fed through a tube until the paralysis is treated. Um, occasionally, we will have patients that come into the office that have a paralyzed vocal cord, uh, and, we're, and we don't know why. Um, one of the uh, uh, more unusual causes of a paralyzed vocal cord is the presence of a tumor or a growth in the neck or possibly up at the level of the skull base. This is a patient that came in uh, to our clinic who was found to have a paralyzed right vocal cord. Um, when we see patients that have a paralyzed vocal cord and we are not sure why, we will usually recommend that they undergo some kind of imaging of the neck, the skull base, and the chest. Uh, this, uh, in the lower frame, is the magnetic resonance image of this patient. Um, in this patient's case, she was found to have a fairly large tumor uh, that was involving the right vocal cord nerve. Uh, tumors can grow in the neck, push on the nerve, and, and cause it to become paralyzed. So usually, if a patient has a paralyzed vocal cord, uh, most physicians, when they're seeing the patient for the first time, will then go ahead and order some kind of scan, either, usually a CAT scan or an MRI, to look at the neck and the skull base and the chest and make sure we don't have something like a tumor going on. This actually is a benign tumor uh, called a carotid body tumor. Usually, we remove these growths, and then we fix the vocal cord. Um, treatment for a paralyzed vocal cord really depends on the patient's symptoms. Uh, for patients that are mildly hoarse, they may actually benefit from voice strengthening exercises like speech therapy. Uh, for other patients uh, that have a large gap between their cords, surgery may often be the remedy of choice. The patient uh, up above um, who has the paralyzed right vocal cord um, was fairly symptomatic. Um, 
she had had a paralysis for uh, several years. We elected to do a surgery for her. Um, some of the surgeries that we do include putting an implant into the vocal cord uh, and sometimes re uh, hooking up a new nerve. In this patient's case, we simply repositioned the joint, and as you can see, we were able to get the vocal cords closed again. Um, and occasionally, we'll have patients in which we can actually inject uh, something into the vocal cord, either collagen or fat or maybe Teflon. Um, injecting the vocal cord also plumps up the vocal cord and allows the vocal cords to close more effectively. Uh, <clears throat> there are some disorders that are, are considered to be precancerous. Uh, leukoplakia um, is a term that we refer to um, when a white patch appears on the vocal cord. Um, white patching on the vocal cord uh, may be a precancerous condition uh, called dysplasia. We typically see this in patients that are smokers. Um, uh, smokers are at increased risk for laryngeal cancer, and usually what is happening is that in the setting of the tobacco smoke, there is a cellular change that is occurring. These cells are becoming abnormal, and usually one of the first thing that happens is, is as they become abnormal is they grow uh, in odd ways, and they may appear as a white patch on the vocal cord. Um, sometimes this is actually mistaken for a fungal infection of the vocal cord, uh, something called thrush. The treatment is usually in removing these and biopsying them. We want to make sure that there's not cancer lurking under the surface of this. If there is cancer, then the patient's going to need more treatment. Once these are removed, we usually recommend that patients stop smoking. Otherwise, this white patching can come back. Uh, another common entity that occurs in smokers is a condition called Reinke's edema. Um, this is an uh, interesting entity that occurs in the setting of um, heated, heated smoke or gases passing over the vocal cords. This occurs also in patients that smoke marijuana, for example. Um, usually, uh, it's the heated gas causes some kind of um, uh, enlargement or hypertrophy of a gelatinous component of the vocal cord that's actually under the surface. What ends up happening is, is that the uh, vocal cords take on a very polypoid-like appearance. What's in here is actually almost like gel. Um, I'm sure that you've heard patients with this kind of a condition. Uh, typically, the patient has a very husky sound. They may have a very raspy, hacking cough. Uh, patients may be actively smoking in this setting, and they're often, uh, they're often prompted to visit a doctor because somebody says, hey, you sound hoarse, and you're a smoker. You've got to go have that checked out. Um, but this is actually um, a benign condition as well. Um, we can actually remove these growths, but if a person keeps smoking, then the polyps are going to come back. Cancer is probably the most common, uh, commonly feared complication, um, or cause of hoarseness rather, but I want to reassure you that it's probably the least common cause. Most patients that see me that are hoarse, this is what they want to know. Am I hoarse because I'm cancer? Uh, once we tell them not, I think most people could care less what else, else I have to say. Uh, they stop listening. They just want to know, is it cancer? Um, Patients with cancer of the vocal cords often present to us at a very early stage because the symptom of hoarseness presents fairly early. And so when we see folks that have cancer uh, that are hoarse, we may be able to get this and treat this very, at a very early stage. Um, cancer can spread to other parts of the throat and then we need to do some more um, aggressive surgery. Um, patients actually may have other associated symptoms in addition to hoarseness, such as difficulty swallowing. Uh, they may be coughing up blood. They may actually have a very persistent pain in the throat that's not going away with typically conservative measures, and they may actually get referred pain into the ear and think that they have an ear infection. Um, if you actually have ear pain and we're not seeing signs of an ear infection, we need to look at your throat um, to make sure we're not seeing something like cancer.
cancer actually has a myriad of different presentations. Uh, it can occur uh, only on one cord. Um, when it occurs to one cord, um, the variety of treatment options that are available include removing it with a laser uh, or treating it with radiation. Um, this is an example of the patient we saw earlier who came into the clinic who was quite hoarse. This was the upper photograph is the view in the clinic, and then the lower photograph again is the view uh, in the operating room. This tumor was confined to just one vocal cord, uh, and this patient uh, was able to be treated fairly successfully just with a laser therapy. Uh, the cancer can actually involve both vocal cords. Uh, this is a patient that has a, a carcinoma that it involves primarily the left vocal cord, but actually crosses over the midline and then begins to involve the front half of the right vocal cord. Uh, this patient, interestingly, we were also able to treat with a laser. Some patients may elect to undergo radiation therapy for something like this as well. Cancers that are confined just to the vocal cords have a very good prognosis. Uh, they do not tend to metastasize uh, to other parts of the body. Uh, that usually occurs in advanced stages and very late. Um, this is an example uh, that we looked at a little bit earlier uh, of a patient uh, who presented to me who was quite hoarse. Um, this individual actually had uh, a growth that was coming from the upper portion of the voice box from an area called the false vocal cord. He was hoarse because the growth was actually falling down on top of his real vocal cord and preventing the vocal cords from closing. Um, when we met this patient in the office, he actually had a, a lump in the neck that he wasn't aware of. Uh, tumors that uh, extend to other parts of the vocal cords may then metastasize, and in this gentleman's case, it actually was a metastasis. Um, we elected to treat him with, a combina with, with surgery alone. Um, if, if cancer is actually left unchecked, the cancer can go on to destroy uh, quite a lot of the voice box. Uh, this is a patient, for example, um, that presented who was quite hoarse, uh, was found ultimately to have a cancer of the vocal cords and then underwent a radiation treatment. He did fairly well, but unfortunately his hoarseness came back. Um, when we took a look at him in the operating room, um, this was the view that we saw. Uh, as you can see, there's relatively uh, little of the normal architecture left anymore. Uh, the tumor has actually destroyed uh, both of the vocal cords. Um, in a situation like this, uh, especially in somebody who has had radiation and, uh, and that has failed, there's usually not very much of an option left for us to do except to remove the voice box uh, and perform something like a total laryngectomy. Um, occasionally, uh, patients may come to us um, for voice changes that are thought to be attributed to hoarseness, um, when in actuality, the change in the voice is due to something else. Um, some patients may have uh, a sound that the, that the voice is deeper or husky or may sound muffled. Some people may have a voice that sounds odd, like high-pitched or whistling. In the patient in the photograph above, the patient uh, came to us with uh, a change in the voice. Uh, the patient wasn't actually hoarse. What the patient actually had was a very muffled sound. When we actually looked in with the uh, cameras to see what the problem was, uh, the patient, uh, as you can see here, has a fairly large growth uh, in the back of the tongue. Uh, this actually turned out to be a, a type of tumor called a lymphoma. Um, the reason why her voice changed was because the mass of the tumor was preventing her tongue from moving very well. She wasn't classically hoarse, uh, as one would expect in somebody that has a vocal cord problem, but her voice sounded odd. Um, in the patient below, this was another patient that was referred to us for hoarseness, 
actually she wasn't particularly hoarse so much as that um, she had a very high-pitched uh, quality to the voice. Um, when we take a look at her in the office, what we can see is, is that the vocal cords themselves actually look to be quite normal in appearance, but in actuality she has um, a tight narrowing of her air passage directly below her vocal cords. So the airflow between the vocal cords had become quite, um, quite fast and turbulent. And actually that's what was accounting for the change in her voice rather than uh, any kind of vocal cord pathology itself. So um, in summary, I'd just like to say that um, there are actually many factors uh, that cause people to become hoarse. Um, usually uh, with a very careful exam uh, in the office with the cameras and the images, uh, imaging techniques that we have today, we're usually able to uncover the source of the problem. If it's still in doubt, then we're often going to the operating room to take a look. Uh, cancer by far and away is the most feared cause of hoarseness, but I, I want to tell you that in, in reality it's probably the least common cause. So a fear of cancer probably should, should not keep you from getting a good checkup. Um, it's unusual and it's rare that it actually turns out to be cancer. There are many other causes for hoarseness. Uh, and finally, there are a variety of treatments uh, for patients with vocal cord problems. Uh, we addressed some of the surgical issues, um, but there are multiple other modalities such as voice rest, antibiotics, and just good time. And these will often help resolve many of the issues that we looked at tonight. Uh, I thank you very much for the opportunity to talk to you, and I would be happy to take any questions that you have. Are there any allergic conditions that can lead to hoarseness? Uh, yes, there are. Uh, patients that may have conditions such as allergic rhinitis, uh, uh, chronic sinusitis, what may happen is some of the secretions may actually be, be coming down the back of the nose and depositing on the cords uh, and causing a person to want to clear the throat. Uh, sometimes we'll see trauma to the vocal cords in the way of nodules from clearing the throat. Um, uh, sometimes the same factors that are causing the nasal passage or the sinus passages to become inflamed are also inflaming the vocal cord tissues. So many patients that are hoarse uh, will often get better uh, when their allergies are under better control. Um, interestingly, some of the preparations that are out there to treat allergies um, are often very drying. Um, and sometimes in treating allergies, patients may go on to develop hoarseness because the throat now becomes quite dry. Um, and then we're kind of in somewhat of a quandary. We need to find a good treatment for these folks. But yes, uh, sinusitis and allergies are, are typically considered as common causes of hoarseness. The comment and the question were that it seems to be a very natural thing to do when we have a cold uh, to want to clear our throat and to cough. Um, the actual act of clearing the throat and coughing causes our vocal cords uh, to be brought together in a very traumatic fashion, in a very repetitive way. Um, it, it temporarily will feel better to clear the throat of these secretions, but in the long term, the repetitive trauma uh, of, of the vocal cords hitting together is actually quite detrimental. And then many patients, um, once they begin to clear their throat, they may actually become trapped in a very vicious cycle. The actual act of, of clearing the throat and coughing by virtue of closing the vocal cords together may start to stimulate some irritation and some swelling. By the time that the original insult cleared, like the viral infection, what patients may be left with is now the irritation and the swelling from the throat clearing, and then that becomes a chronic problem. Um, my, my advice to patients is usually, um, no matter what, don't clear that throat. Um, get into the habit of carrying with you a bottle of water, and when you feel the urge to clear the throat, take a big drink of water instead and swallow it down. Um, many patients that may have a cough may cough so hard that they can actually bleed into the vocal cord um, or actually cause a laceration or a cut on the vocal cord. Um, in those situations, what we want to do is we want to try to stop the coughing process um, 
Robitussin, some kind of uh, cough syrup that has dextromethorphan in it. Uh, sometimes some of the opiate-based um, cough suppressants like Hycotus we will use in an effort to try to stop the coughing. Um, I know that the common teaching is cough out what is in the lung, um, but we really want to do is we want to try to minimize that trauma to the vocal cords. So um, if we can, we try to have people just take a drink of water and swallow that down, try not to clear the throat. How do we confirm post-nasal drip as the cause and what do we do about it? Uh, it actually can be extremely difficult to confirm that. Um, typically what we do is we ask the patient, what are you feeling, what do you think? Um, patients are typically, or can be typically aware of something coming, um, draining down the back of the nose. They take a big sniff and then they can feel something running down or something exiting the back of the nose and down into the throat or they may be aware of a drip, uh, of a drip that occurs that is going down into the throat. Um, uh, sometimes when we actually see folks in the clinic, we may be fortunate enough to actually see the drainage tracking down the back wall of the throat and down into the throat. I can tell you, though, that that actual scenario is very rare. Uh, usually we're relying on, on what the patient is telling us. It's unusual that we can kind of catch that actually in the act. When we do, it's extremely obvious then what the problem is. Um, the treatment for post-nasal drip uh, is usually to treat the underlying cause. If it's, an if it's an allergic problem, we treat the allergies. If it's chronic sinusitis, we may institute something called nasal irrigation where we're asking a patient to wash the nose out with saline. There are certain, uh, there are certain sprays, topical steroid sprays and decongestant sprays that may actually decrease the inflammation and stop the post-nasal drip. Um, if we can get a hold of the post-nasal drip, then the hoarseness will improve. The question was um, hoarseness in a patient that had had a prior uh, prolonged intubation uh, and also has a history of asthma and the hoarseness uh, has been uh, present uh, for some time since the intubation. Uh, there are several factors that could be playing a role there. Uh, patients that have been intubated sometimes may develop a, a, a paralysis of the vocal cords uh, or if not a full-blown paralysis, a weakness of the vocal cords that is impairing closure. Uh, some patients may develop a inflammatory growth in the back of the vocal cord, as we saw earlier, called a granuloma, that actually props the vocal cords apart and keeps them from achieving closure. Uh, some patients that have asthma that take some of the medicated uh, inhalers that are currently available to treat the asthma can actually develop a chronic laryngitis from the um, effects of the medication on the vocal cords themselves. There can actually be thickening of the vocal cords uh, or deposits uh, of, this, of this medication on the vocal cords that leads to areas of thickening, and that in turn may cause a person to have hoarseness that vacillates. Uh, probably the, um, the, the way to know for sure is to simply take a look and see. Usually the, the physical exam will kind of clarify what the actual cause of the hoarseness is. The question is, is a, a nine-year-old uh, uh, granddaughter who has had uh, a lifelong or near lifelong history of a gravelly or hoarse voice. Uh, and the question is, is, is that pathology or could that just be her natural voice? It most certainly could be her natural voice. It very well could be. Um, everyone is unique. Every voice is different. The voice is actually like a thumbprint. It's that unique. Um, uh, many children actually can develop uh, a condition called screamers nodules. Um, little children that run around on the playground and they're yelling uh, and then they sound uh, a little husky or raspy, they've developed nodules. Uh, it's a pattern of, of vocal abuse that little children get and that actually may be the cause. Um, children also get papilloma uh, and they can also have cysts. Um, so all of those are potential possibilities. Uh, probably the most common thing that causes hoarseness in a child is likely to be nodules. 
Um, and actually, an exam kind of clears that up. But yes, it could be her natural voice. It could also be her natural voice. Can an enlarged thyroid on one side cause hoarseness? Um, anything is possible. Uh, it is possible that the mass effect of something very large in the neck could put enough pressure on a nerve to cause changes in the voice, even enough to weaken a nerve. In actuality, strange as it may sound, that's actually quite uncommon. Um, when patients have uh, an asymmetrically enlarged thyroid gland and they actually develop something like a paralysis uh, of the vocal cord on that side, uh, we really need to be suspicious for something like cancer. Um, that is, is, is a possibility in that kind of a setting. It's actually fairly unusual to have an enlarged gland uh, that by pressure uh, in terms of benign disease that actually interferes with the function of the nerve. Another condition that actually can occur that is like that is something called um, a hypothyroid goiter. People that have a very low functioning thyroid can get a very enlarged gland and they can sound hoarse because the vocal cords are getting swollen. And then when we begin to replace the thyroid, uh, the patient with thyroid hormone, the voice quality actually can get a lot better. And then the goiter will usually stabilize in size. The question is, is, is what would happen to a person that has nodules? Um, uh, what, what happens if, if that goes unchecked? Actually, uh, many patients have nodules. Uh, many, many people that are out there in the public eye have nodules. Uh, many, many people on TV that we recognize that have a pleasant voice to listen to or that have a unique or characteristic voice, they have nodules. Um, nodules aren't necessarily a bad thing. Um, they, don't, they, they don't degenerate into cancer. Um, they are not usually something that leads to something else that is bad. Um, certain conditions of the vocal cords, like a polyp, um, like a, a large blood dilated blood vessel on the vocal cord could potentially lead to more problems later if not treated. But nodules generally are not one of those things. Um, many patients go their entire childhood and adult life with nodules uh, and, and it's one of the things that's helped them achieve um, fame or notoriety or success. The question is, is clearing the throat, is that habitual? I'm sad to say, yes, it is. Um, unfortunately, it's one of the more uh, recalcitrant uh, problems that I see in the clinic. Um, usually, there's some kind of an event, a bad cold, somebody went to sleep for some kind of an operation, and then they woke up with some throat irritation, and ever since then, they've been clearing the throat. Um, unfortunately, what happens, again, when we clear the throat is that we, we close the cords together very traumatically, and that can keep an irritated area per perpetually irritated. Um, the actual term for that, uh, or the sense of a lump in the throat, is called globus. Um, that has actually um, gone through an evolution over the past 150 years. It was originally uh, termed globus hystericus because we would look at the throat, see nothing there, and just determine that the patient was crazy. Um, and that usually that's, uh, that may not be the case. Um, the unfortunate problem is is that when we look, we may not see very much. We certainly don't see what the patient feels. Most patients feel that most patients feel that there is a lump in the throat, a growth, a nodule, something irritated. And when we look, we don't see a whole lot. So what exactly is causing the sensation of the lump? It's, it's hotly debated. It could be just that, a sensation. The nerves there are sending a signal back to the brain saying there's something in your throat and it's a phantom signal. Uh, it could be that patients actually feel whatever amount of swelling is there and that's what they interpret it as the, the lump. Um, Trying to break a person of the habit of clearing the throat is difficult. Um, usually I ask people, 
start carrying a bottle of water with you. When you feel the urge to clear the throat, take a look at that water bottle in your hand, ask yourself why it's there, answer the question that it's there so I don't clear the throat and take a drink of water. Um, some patients may benefit from biofeedback, from hypnosis, from anti-reflux medications. Um, it's really a, a, a myriad of possibilities, but it's a very, very difficult uh, problem to treat and it affects, it's very, very common and it's very uh, irritating and debilitating to a lot of patients. Can sleep apnea affect the vocal cords? Uh, in a way, uh, sleep apnea can be associated with other conditions such as acid reflux disease, um, which in turn may affect the vocal cords. Uh, sometimes there are disorders, there are, can be some rare neurological disorders that which, which actually may be mistaken for sleep apnea where the vocal cords may close instead of open when we breathe and people will, will look and sound like they have sleep apnea, but they have actually a weakness of the vocal cords. Sleep apnea itself may actually um, also decrease a person's ability to, it, it may drop the drive to want to breathe and may uh, uh, keep a person from actually taking as deep a breath or opening up the vocal cords as widely. The, the, the sleep apnea per se itself may not necessarily lead directly to pathology, but is often uh, correlated with other pathology that in turn can affect the vocal cords. Does sleeping with one's mouth open dry out the vocal cords? Uh, yes, it can. Um, actually, um, one of the functions of our nasal passages is to humidify and clean the air that we breathe. Um, if patients have nasal obstruction, air gets diverted through the mouth. Uh, the mouth does not humidify the air that we breathe as effectively as the nasal passages do. Uh, dry air hitting the vocal cords will lead to a drying of the, of the uh, throat and the vocal cords, which in turn can lead to kind of a chronic irritated throat and hoarseness. So yes, it can. How is the examination of the throat done? Uh, usually the examination of the throat is done in three ways. First of all, uh, it's typically done in the office. Um, it's usually not painful. Uh, it's usually fairly short. It may be as simple as looking at the vocal cords with a small uh, angulated mirror looking through the mouth. That actually gives us a very good picture. Uh, the other way that we look at the vocal cords is with a fiber optic camera that is passed through the nose, uh, and we look, we look through that fiber optic camera at the vocal cords. Typically, these patients will have some kind of a topical spray for the nasal cavity to numb up the nasal passage so it's a little bit more comfortable. And then the third way that we look at a patient's vocal cords is with a long, uh, rigid scope, a series of lenses in a row that has an, a beveled angle at the tip, call, uh, either a 70 or a 90 degree angled camera that uh, when looking through the mouth allows us to look straight down at the vocal cords. The pictures in the slides here tonight were taken with such a camera. Um, that's typically how we examine the cords. If we can't get a view that way, the next step is actually to have a person go to sleep in the operating room for a few minutes and look directly at the vocal cords. Uh, it doesn't happen very often, but we have the occasional patient that may have such an extreme gag reflex or may be so squeamish or faint that they won't tolerate even these other uh, methods of looking at the cords. So that's typically how it's done. How low down are the vocal cords? Uh, in men, it's probably the easy, men have the easiest way of localizing the vocal cords. If you feel your Adam's apple, and you go down about, a, about maybe about half an inch, that puts you at about roughly the level of your vocal cords. Uh, in females who don't, you know, that females don't tend to have a prominent Adam's apple, you wanna to try to feel for that notch where the top of your voice box is and go down again about a half an inch and that will put you at roughly the level of the vocal cords. If you're talking or saying E or humming and you run your finger along the front of your neck, you may be able to localize uh, where they are, but that's almost about center of the neck. But patients, a voice box can either be very high in the neck or very, very low in the neck. It's, it's actually quite variable.
What happens to a person's vocal cords when a person hyperventilates? Uh, the vocal cords are actually uh, in, a, in an open um, or abducted position. Uh, you saw in the pictures there a V-like appearance. Uh, the vocal cords are actually kept far open and very, very wide. Uh, and a person will keep those vocal cords apart and just simply breathe and pass air in between the vocal cords. Um, that's what's happening in hyperventilation. What is the difference between the speaking voice and the singing voice, and why does it take much longer for the singing voice to come back after a cold? Uh, boy, that is a question for a whole other lecture. Um, very difficult to answer. Um, the, um, there are different muscle groups that are in play in the vocal cords, uh, when be, and there's a difference between how those muscles are used when we're singing and how we are speaking. Um, in order for us to transition smoothly among different pitch ranges and between a singing and a speaking voice depends a lot on how those muscles are used and actually how pliable and how soft the vocal cord tissues themselves are. When people are sick, the cords get stiff and it becomes extremely difficult to make a stiff cord pass through and do these um, acrobatics that singers can do. Um, when we go from a medium or a low to a high pitch or sing in falsetto, we are actually going from the transition of one muscle group to another. People refer to that as their break, as going from chest voice to head voice. It's a passing off and a handing off of muscle tension in the vocal cords. Uh, professional singers do this seamlessly. Uh, amateurs don't do it so seamlessly. Uh, people that are sick can't do it at all. Uh, patients that are sick typically lose their top range. Uh, this is typical in females that tend to sing in a top range. Men that sing in a bass or a baritone uh, may be less troubled by this, um, but it's, it's essentially a change in the, in the complex interplay between vocal cord muscular tension and the pliability of the cord. It's a person that sounds very hoarse, I'm sorry, in the, in the morning and then sounds better as the day goes on. Uh, is she sleeping with her mouth open? Um, I don't know. It could be. Uh, it's possible. Uh, actually, interestingly, some patients actually uh, may be prone to acid reflux disease, and perhaps the vocal cords may be bathed with acid during the course of the evening, and then as the day wears on, maybe some of that swelling is going down. Um, it's a little bit hard to know. A little bit hard to know. Could, could, be, could be mouth breathing, could be acid reflux disease. Um, hard to know. Does snoring affect the vocal cords? Uh, no. Actually, the, uh, the sound of snoring comes primarily from the vibration of our soft palate and our uvula and our tongue against the back of our throat. Uh, the sound of snoring actually doesn't come really from our vocal cords, not classically. Um, surgery that removes part of that soft palate or reduces the size of the tongue actually will resolve the snoring. Uh, children that have large tonsils may snore, and when we take out the tonsils, the snoring goes away. Um, Patients can have noise that comes from them when, they're, when they are sleeping or breathing that can actually come from the vocal cords, but typically it's called strider. It's a high-pitched wheeze like <laughs> that kind of a noise as opposed to a kind of a snort. <laughs> and so it's, it's a difference, yeah. <laughs> when we remove the part of the soft palate, will a person's voice change? It can. Uh, actually, patients that speak uh, Arabic or Farsi uh, that may rely on the uvula to create a guttural type of sound, we need to warn patients that that may be impaired after surgery for snoring or sleep apnea. Uh, patients that uh, have scarring of the palate where the palate may now be stiff from that kind of an operation where it can't seal off the nasal cavity may suddenly have a very nasal sound to their vocal quality. Um, so yes, vocal quality can actually be affected. It's not common, but it can.
What are some other remedies that people can do at home uh, other than drink water and rest the boys uh, to help an irritated throat? Uh, if patients, and, and the answer was uh, patients, um, some patients have, have learned this to inhale uh, things like steam. Um, you want to try to deliver moisturized uh, humidified air to the vocal cords and patients people can do this in a variety of ways uh, classically we would have patients uh, sit in a, in a shower or a bathroom and run a shower on very very hot and inhale the steam uh, you, you probably have all seen pictures or caricatures of somebody sitting over a bowl full of hot water with a towel over their head and breathing this in as a tent um, there actually are devices that you can purchase at a drugstore uh, called facial saunas this is essentially uh, an evaporator or, or a humidifier type device that comes with a shallow plastic bowl. You fill this with water, put your face down into this and breathe that in. Um, and many people find that soothing. Um, depending on um, the cause of the irritation, there are other over-the-counter things that do help. Some patients are bothered more by the thick secretions. Things like Robitussin or Guaifenesin may actually thin uh, those secretions and make people's throats feel better, uh, not so congested. Some patients benefit from diphenhydramine, which is um, can come as a dissolvable strip um, and one takes this by mouth and as it dissolves people may find this soothing. Uh, same principle applies to why things like Ricola or, or Hall's uh, cough drops may be soothing. It may coat or numb the throat a little bit and take away some of the irritation. Um, probably what's, what's also very key is again not to clear the throat if, if a person can do that. Um, that's probably what one can do. I strongly advise against dehydrating agents, allergy medicines, Sudafed, Benadryl, unless you really have symptoms where you're having a very runny nose or you're very congested in the sinuses, there's gonna become a trade-off with those types of drugs. You're gonna get dry. You're not only gonna get dry in the nasal cavity, you're gonna get dry in the throat. There's gotta be a balance there. Some people may be made worse by taking some of these remedies. Um, interestingly, antibiotics rarely play a role uh, in, in that situation. Most of these illnesses are viral in origin, and unless there's a secondary bacterial infection, uh, antibiotics usually don't play any role. They, make us, they may make us feel better that we're doing something, but they're actually really not doing very much. Is it always dryness, or could it be wetness in terms of the post-nasal drip? Yes, it could be the wetness as well. Mm -hmm. Could be a discharge coming down the back of the nose and depositing onto the vocal cords. In that situation, things like Sudafed or Benadryl are probably gonna help more. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.